everyone, welcome back to Brooks Books. Today I'll be reviewing J.R. Silver Writes Her World by Melissa Dazzery, and the feature author is the one and only Gary Paulson. This book is amazing. I know I say that about literally every single book I review, but it's true. I found this book on a book stand on a shelf at my library, and after reading the summary, I was hooked. I'm so glad it was on display, or I never would have found it. Since I have no emails or comments this episode, it's time for the summary. J.R. Silver misses her best friend, Violet. She misses playing their own version of From the Mixed-Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, their favorite book, in the museum J.R.'s parents work at. Ever since Violet came back from the camp, J.R.'s overprotective parents wouldn't let her go to, Violet's been hanging out a lot with her new best friend, Ava Arles. The same Ava who is the most popular girl in their grade, and the same Ava that both J.R. and Violet did not like at all at the beginning of summer. To make matters worse, Violet has a phone now and has less and less time for J.R. J.R.'s only escape is writing, one of her favorite things to do. When her teacher helps her discover that using special Gothamite magazines, the things she writes can come true, but with great power comes great responsibility. Can J.R. use her newfound powers to save something especially close to her heart? J.R. is definitely one of my favorite protagonists because I could very easily relate to her friend troubles, and I'm sure that most readers would find a character to relate to in this book. I also like the storyline of the book and the thought that what you might might come true. Time for the author information. The author of this book, Melissa Dazri, has only written this book, and I hope she plans to write more. Time for the first chapter. Chapter one, obviously. That one, said Violet as she stepped so close to the railing that a blue-suited guard waved her back. Definitely that one. Violet spread her fingers and stretched her arms above her head in an exaggerated yawn as she turned into a grin. The source of her satisfaction was a 300-year-old canopied bed framed by blue silk curtains. Jara wouldn't have deemed it the best place to sleep in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but she was relieved by her friend's enthusiasm. Violet had been moping around all morning, which was no way to spend the last Friday of summer before the start of sixth grade. When it came to hunting beds at the Met, J.R. and Violet were experts. They had played their own version of From the Mixed-Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler more times than either could remember. Like the stars of the book, who, ru- who run away from home and hide out in New York City's most famous museum, the girls had identified the best beds to sleep in in the fanciest fountains for bathing. They knew where to find an old American card table so they could play gin rummy, a gold cover armoire that would hide their clothes, and a blue china tea set from which to take a refreshment, to take refreshment, which they both liked to say in snooty British accents. They'd even practiced squatting, squatting over imaginary chamber pots. Violet leaned over the railing for one more look, accidentally unleashing her lung her long brown curls and making her earrings swing. The blue circles with ornate white M's on them were styled from the metal buttons the Met once used as admission tickets. 
Jerry gave the pair to Violet for her 10th birthday, and she planned to get some herself when she when she turned 13 and could get her ears pierced. Violet delicately brushed her hair behind her shoulders. What about you? she asked. The usual? To hear Violet say the usual made Jerry feel boring, but she did have a usual pick. Her favorite bed was in the Haverfield Room, a 19th century New England bedroom in the museum's American Wing. It was a lot simpler than a recreated French palace where they were standing, but it still had its own four-poster bed, just one that was covered in plain white cotton instead of fancy blue silk. As they passed by a series of medieval statues, Violet pulled out her phone for the millionth time that morning. She was carrying an impractically small purse, so to check her texts, she had to squeeze the phone out past the zipper, tempting it to burst. The only thing J.R. had with her was a pack of tissues. Allergy season was not her friend. I, can't, I still can't believe your parents got you a phone, she said. Yours really won't budge? Violet's eyes didn't leave her weak old de device. They say I don't need one since my mom will pick me up. Now J.R. had her full, her friend's full attention. First you couldn't go with me to Washu, and now your parents won't give up on pickup. Violet punched the word up both times. J.R. countered with a gentle elbow to the ribs. I'm just saying, Violet added, making a face. A who, me face? Just saying, J.R. repeated with enough humor to show goodwill. Well, one thing we do know is that Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without any presents. Violet riffed on the opening line from Little Woman, another one of their favorite books. J.R. even liked to imagine that her parents had named her Josephine Rose after Louisa May Alcott's hero, Josephine March. In truth, the Josephine in question was a great aunt she never met. Violet might have been on to something, though. December was probably the next thing to persuade J.R.'s parents to get her a phone, or Hanukkah. J.R. added since her family celebrated both holidays. It's too bad your mom and dad are so strict these days. It was too bad, but J.R.'s parents were always stricter than Violet's. Refusing to let her to go to sleepaway camp or get a phone had been frustrating. Not letting her walk home alone was unbearable. Being a walker was a privilege that students at Nick earned in sixth grade, and a very big deal. J.R. was determined to tackle this last parent parental affront immediately. The challenge was how to do it. What should I say to make them understand? Violet lost in her phone didn't answer. J.R. was pretty sure she was competing for attention with Ava Arles, the most popular girl in the grade. It made the situation worse. A lot had changed over the summer. When J.R. and Violet learned that Ava was going to Violet's camp, neither of them was pleased. They wondered how she would survive the resident mascot, Sam the Snapping Turtle, and the frigid swims in Lake Washoot, never mind Meatloaf Mondays. Somehow, though, Ava had survived. In fact, she thrived and played a bigger and bigger role in each letter J.R. received that summer. In early August, J.R. had been so distraught while reading about Violet and Ava's hike up Mount Washington that she walked straight into her downstairs neighbor, Mr. Richardson, and spilled his iced coffee all over his shirt. He had been so nice about it, asking if she was okay, even though he was the one soaked and stained, that J.R. burst out crying and ran up to the apartment without even apologizing. Worse was that Mr. Richardson wasn't Ed Navier, but the owner of her favorite store, June Books, right on the Silver's Corner. The whole encounter was mortifying, and she hadn't gone into the shop ever since. 
So what'd you guys think? Literally when I was reading it, I was so caught up and picturing it in my head, I totally forgot I was reading this for my podcast. So now for the cautions. Guess what? There is none. J.R. Silver writes her world is completely clean. So now time for the featured author, the one and only Gary Paulson. Most of you might know him from his popular classic, Hatchet. He's also written four sequels to Hatchet called The River, Brian's Winter, Brian's Return, and Brian's Hunt. Gary Paulson has written so many books, it would take forever for me to list them. So, here are some examples. The Hatchet series, Lawn Boy, Woodsong, and Gone to the Woods. He is unfortunately dead, dying at 82 years old. He lived with his wife, Ruth Wright Paulson, and he had three kids, named Lance and Lynn Paulson and James Wright. Time for some fun facts. He had nine dogs throughout his lifetime, and their names were Cookie, Snowball, Ike, Dirk, Rex, Fred, Caesar, Quincy, and Josh. He has also ran the Alaskan dog race, the Iditarod, twice and wrote for up to 20 hours a day. That's like writing all day plus late night and early mornings and about four hours of sleep. Wow. He owned a large ranch in Alaska where he raised and trained sled dogs. Last fact, his wife Ruth was an artist and illustrated most of his books. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining me and I'll see you next week for my next episode. Make sure to email me at brooksbooks13 at gmail.com for book recommendations or if you want to